NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Happy Easter. A Democratic leader in Tennessee says there's even more support for gun control now after two black lawmakers were kicked out of the state's General Assembly. Because of the expulsion, it has ignited a fire across this state. And plants that need water make sounds that humans can't hear. Find out about the latest research. Plus, singer-songwriter Natalie Merchant is back with a new album. It's Sunday, April 9th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. China is engaged in a second day of military drills around Taiwan. Officials from Taiwan report the Chinese military is conducting simulated precision strikes against the independently ruled island. NPR's James Jones has more. China has sent dozens of warplanes towards Taiwan for a second day of military drills. It's using the show of force in the Taiwan Straits to register its disapproval of meetings that Taiwan's president had in California. California with American lawmakers, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Those meetings follow a visit by a bipartisan congressional delegation to Taiwan. Taiwan's defense ministry reports 58 Chinese aircraft, including fighter jets, crossed into Taiwan's self-declared air defense identification zone Sunday morning. It appears China has not fired any missiles into the waters near Taiwan as it did last year, when then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei in August. James Jones, NPR News. The Justice Department says it's investigating how secret military documents on the war in Ukraine made their way onto multiple social media sites. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Pentagon is already looking into the leak. Dozens of classified U.S. documents on the Ukraine war have cropped up in the past few days on sites that include Twitter, Telegram, and 4chan. Many appear part of a slide display of maps and charts that are produced daily for Pentagon leaders. The papers do not reveal Ukrainian battle plans for a widely expected offensive this spring. However, they do provide details on combat brigades that Ukraine is assembling and when they should be ready to fight. NPR's Greg Myrie and the Middle East militants in Syria fired rockets toward Israel. In a rare attack from Israel's northern neighbor, Israel bombed Syrian military targets in response. This as tensions and violence in the region continue. The situation there was noted in Vatican City today, where tens of thousands attended Easter Mass, celebrated by Pope Francis, followed shortly thereafter by the Pope's Orbi at Orbi address to the city and the world. Speaking from his balcony, the Pope focused on global strife and the traditional Easter blessing Pope Francis called on the international community to strive to end conflicts in Ukraine, Syria, and elsewhere. He is heard here through a BBC interpreter. On this day, Lord, we entrust to you the city of Jerusalem. I express deep concern for the attacks of these last few days that threaten the climate of trust and mutual respect necessary to resume dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians so that peace may reign in the holy city and throughout the region. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The city of Boston is preparing to honor prominent civil rights leader and political leader Mel King. Buildings in Boston will be lit up in colors of the rainbow tomorrow and Tuesday, the days of King's wake and funeral. King was the founder of the Rainbow Coalition political party, and he was the first black candidate to make it to the finals of a Boston mayoral election. Mayor Wu will declare Tuesday an official day of remembrance, King died last month at the age of 94. Latinos in western Massachusetts say they are not yet properly represented on Governor Healy's new Council on Latino Empowerment. Springfield State Representative Carlos Gonzalez says he's concerned the commission only has one member from his part of the state. Out of the counties in Massachusetts, we have one of the highest uh, Latino demographic groups. So I just thought that it would be more vital for the community to have more representation. The panel will advise the governor on ways to expand opportunities for the state's growing Latino community. The governor's office says the council is still seeking new members. Clinicians who provide abortions in Massachusetts are preparing for the potential loss of access to a commonly used abortion pill. A federal judge in Texas is ordering a halt to the use of mifepristone. It is part of a two-pill protocol for a medical abortion. The ruling is being challenged. Governor Maura Healy says tomorrow she will outline a plan to maintain access to both pills regardless of what happens in the federal courts. Gloucester firefighters are looking for hot spots following a large brush fire that broke out yesterday in the Quarry Street area. Brush fires over the past couple of days have had firefighters scrambling in several communities. Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation Chief Fire Warden Dave Salino is asking people to help prevent the fires, especially now in the extremely dry conditions. We ask the public to be very aware of their surroundings. When we send out that messaging, like elevated fire risk, there's a reason for it. It's based on science. It's based on what the conditions are. Selena's urging people to extinguish smoking materials. It's 40 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, telling stories behind data and trends that shape our world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We're starting this hour in Tennessee, where Democrats are picking up the pieces after the state's House of Representatives expelled two of the party's members last week, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Republicans in the chamber said the two men, who are both black, violated decorum when they spoke on the House floor without being recognized and used a bullhorn to call for gun control. Another Democrat, a white woman, participated in the protest but was not expelled. Local legislatures are expected to meet soon to name people to fill the vacant seats. The Democratic leader of the House, Karen Camper, represents part of Memphis, as did one of the expelled members, Justin Pearson. I asked her what the reaction had been from their constituents. Well, man, constituents are excited over the fact that this young man who's an advocate and come out of the advocacy world, uh, made a stand for the people. They felt like he, you know, in his advocacy self, was speaking up for the voiceless, and people in Memphis want him back. They're urging the county commission to send him back, and they're going to be here every day until he comes back. 
You know, as as I mentioned, uh, Pearson and Jones are both black and and you're a a black woman. And and there are nine other black Democrats in the House left, um, if I'm not mistaken. Did you feel like this was a message being sent to the black lawmakers um, in, in the House of Representatives? I think it was in the sense that here are two black men standing up who was honored to actually be serving. Thinking back on our history and what it took to even get us there. And they've both kind of been met with some level of what they perceive is racial tensions toward them. So there is this sense that, you know, what message are you trying to send to the Black Caucus here? You know, so I do think members are, are thinking back and looking at their own life course here and, see, and you know, reevaluating some of these relationships. And, and so what are you feeling going forward or how you respond going forward? Well, the first thing uh, is to get them reseated. And it appears that the two bodies will, in fact, reappoint them and then there will be a special election and the people want them back. So we feel that they will be reseated. I spoke with the speaker and we're planning to reseat them. If that's what the people want, they will not be pushing back on it. It won't be no attempt to not seat them. So we expect that they will actually be reseated to their position. And then we're going to fight to get some gun safety legislation passed. And because that's what these two lawmakers, the, the, the two Justins, Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, they were calling for more gun control legislation in response to that fatal shooting last month at a Christian school in Tennessee. Do, do you feel like their expulsion helps that cause or is it a distraction? I think what has happened is that because of the expulsion, it has ignited a fire across this state. If you look at all the young people who were there saying, we are terrified of going back to school. We're tired of doing mass shooting, uh, gun alert kinds of practices and where we got to run and hide in a closet. They're tired of that. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Nashville Friday to speak with the two ousted members. She then spoke at Fisk University, a historically black university. Um, Here's a little of what she said. A democracy says you don't silence the people. You do not stifle the people. You don't turn off their microphones when they are speaking about the importance of life and How important was her visit to you and other Democratic leaders? Extremely. I was there. I mean, I got chills just listening to it again. Uh, And that, that, that outburst from the crowd was exactly what was happening in the State House. People want to be heard. It, it just meant the world to, to, to our caucus, and especially to the three of them, that their work was not in vain and that their work was a just cause. I, I know you, you mentioned that you think that there is an opportunity to work for Republicans and Democrats to work together, um, you know, even in, in the light of this expulsion. I guess, like, for people who are listening and may feel like, like, you know, they've heard these things at the state level, at the federal level, and they're not seeing much get done. 
what do you say to that? What are the real chances of, you know, getting something done, especially when it comes to contentious issues like gun control? The, the, the Republicans are going to have to look in the mirror and decide if they really want to do something to make change uh, with respect to gun safety. I'm an eternal optimist. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to ever give up. That's not who I am. That's not where my people come from. That's not my history. The two men who was ousted, they're the same way. That's not who they are at their core. So we cannot ever stop fighting for what we know is right. That's Karen Camper, Minority Leader of the Tennessee House of Representatives. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Keep us in your prayers on this Easter weekend. And thank you so much, NPR, for covering this story. Credit is the grease that keeps the wheels of the economy spinning. And as credit gets harder to come by, some businesses are starting to squeak. NPR's Scott Horsley reports what the credit crunch, which started even before the collapse of two large banks last month, could mean for the economy as a whole. Liz Southers runs a commercial insulation business in South Florida. Her husband and his brother do most of the installing. She handles marketing and business development. There's no shortage of work. The construction industry is not slowing down. If we could just get out there a little more and hire more people, we would just have so much more opportunity. But Souther says it often takes a month or more to get paid for a job, while she has to pay her employees every week. She'd like to get a line of credit to cover that gap so she could hire more people and grow the business. But while her bank's been encouraging, they haven't put up any money. They're like, your numbers are incredible, but they're like, you guys are still pretty new and we're very risk averse. Chris and Braddon knows that frustration. She runs a business in Houston that turns recycled materials into driveways, parking lots, and those squishy soft surfaces you now find under a lot of playgrounds. Right now, she's got more work than she can handle. I'm currently telling customers, I can't touch your job until September. And these are contracted jobs that they're waiting for me Bratton could move faster and take on more work if she had a bobcat tractor to handle excavation and a larger machine for mixing materials. But even though she has a nine-year track record, banks are wary about extending additional credit. Everybody, I think, is very gun-shy. I mean, we've got the R-word recession floating around, and, and sometimes it feels like the, the purse strings get tighter and it's not just me. Other small businesses are struggling with the same thing. They can't get the funds to grow, to hire, to buy the equipment that they need. The Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas surveyed 71 banks late last month and found a significant drop in lending. It already costs more to borrow money as a result of rising interest rates, and now lenders are expected to get even stingier. After the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last month, Alex Cates called the bank in Huntington Beach, California, where he keeps his business account and has a line of credit. We've got a great relationship with our bank. Randy's our banker. Uh, I was just checking in. Cates runs a consulting business with 85 employees, so he often keeps 2 or $3 million in the bank to cover payroll, well over the limit that's ordinarily insured. Kate says Randy assured him that his money is safe and stressed the bank is very conservative. Through that conversation, he said, just FYI, not that you know we think any differently about your business, Alex. Had the banking situation happened in December, for example, 
I don't know that we could have gotten your line of credit renewed just because you're only a two and a half, almost three-year-old business and, you know, that presents a risk. And there's the double-edged sword. As a depositor, Cates is grateful that the bank is extra careful with his money. But as a business that depends on credit, that banker's caution can seem like overkill. It's a catch-22. You know, we have three million in deposits and you're telling me my credit's no good. <laughs> We've never missed a payment. They have complete transparency into what we spend our money on. But now all of a sudden, we could have been looked at as an untenable risk. And as banks across the country get more cautious, that acts like a break on the broader economy. That's not all bad. It might help to bring down inflation. The Fed thinks tighter lending standards could work sort of like an extra boost in interest rates. But Joe Brusuelis, who's chief economist at the consulting firm RSM, says the ripple effects are hard to predict. You want the economy to cool. You want inflation to come back towards the 2% target. But this is a profoundly disorderly way to do it. And lenders aren't the only ones who are getting nervous. Bratton, the Houston contractor with all those driveways and playgrounds to install, has her own concerns about which way the economy's headed. Even though I would love to have an extended line of credit, I also have to look at my books and sit there and say, how much can I stomach sticking my neck out? Because I don't want to be stuck holding a bag if things flip on a dime. Often, the availability of credit is closely tied up with confidence. When credit dries up, even risk-taking business people may find their confidence shaken. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about five minutes, WBUR Simone Rios reports on community land trusts. It's 43 degrees in Boston on this Easter morning. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 40s. Lows in the mid 30s overnight. Then a sunny Monday. Warmer tomorrow. Highs in the low 60s. Tuesday, sunshine. High around 70. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jewish Arts Collaborative. Jewish culture is more than matzo balls, and J-Arts is here to explore with you. Visit jartsboston.org for events and resources. And Merrimack College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. On this Easter Sunday, Pope Francis celebrated Mass in St. Peter's Square, delivering his traditional Easter blessing, calling on the international community to strive to end conflicts in Ukraine, Syria, and elsewhere. China is engaged in a second day of military drills around Taiwan. Officials from Taiwan report the Chinese military is conducting simulated precision strikes against the independently ruled island. The Justice Department says that it's investigating how secret military documents on the war in Ukraine made their way onto multiple social media sites. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Strep throat, the bacterial infection that typically causes a sore throat, seems to be everywhere these days. It can affect adults, but it's most common in school-age children. And it's treated with antibiotics, typically amoxicillin. But that's proving more difficult these days because there's a nationwide amoxicillin shortage. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to talk to us about that. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Aisha. So let's start with what's going on with strep. Like, is this season actually worse than normal? It is, unfortunately. We don't have exact numbers of cases because the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention doesn't actually track run-of-the-mill strep infections, but strep activity is higher these days. Here's what Caitlin Rivers told me. She's an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. This whole winter season has been really tough for the common pathogens that keep us out of school and out of work, and strep throat is one that has really been going around. Now, the CDC does track a certain kind of strep called invasive group A strep. Invasive strep means instead of the bacteria staying in the throat, it goes to other parts of the body. So it can get in the bloodstream and cause a rash. And after two years of record low cases of this kind of strep during the height of the pandemic, those cases are actually higher than usual this season. Regardless of what kind of strep someone has, though, strep infections need to be treated with antibiotics. So a shortage of amoxicillin is making things really tricky for families. And that actually hit home for Caitlin Rivers late last year when both of her kids had strep. We had to visit several pharmacies to find the medication that we needed. And so it just adds another burden on what's already been a really difficult winter respiratory season for families. That's like super frustrating, you know, like and I, I got three kids and, you know, they get sick all the time. And so these type of shortages are like a little scary. Like how big a deal is this? Well, it's been going on for a while now. The FDA added it to its list of drug shortages in October of last year, and there are still amoxicillin products that aren't available. So this shortage is limited to the pediatric versions of amoxicillin, so like liquid products that are easier for kids to take as opposed to pills. And like you'll remember, or as a mom you'll know, this is the pink stuff that you... Yes, (laughs) that my kids have had to take when they had like the flu or whatever or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the shortage is affecting multiple brands, but it's not every product. So pharmacists and doctors have options. I talked to Erin Fox, who's a national expert on drug shortages at the University of Utah, and she says the issue is that a really popular strength of amoxicillin is what's not available. You might need to switch. So you might have to take a little bit more volume, which I have given children antibiotics, and I know that that's not fun. She says parents might need to call around if their pharmacy doesn't have what they need. Okay, but so what is actually causing this shortage? So some companies have said this is a demand issue, and that means that there are more people who need it than what's available. Here's Aaron Fox again. 
companies typically look to see what their sales were the prior year. They might make a little bit of an adjustment, but with the really severe respiratory season we've had this year, it just simply was a mismatch between what people manufactured and what was available. However, under current rules and regulations, drug makers actually don't have to tell the public why something's in shortage, and not all of the companies that make this have explained themselves. But based on what those few companies have said, it doesn't seem to be that this is a problem with manufacturing or contamination or anything like that. And that means that they can hopefully get the forecast right for next year. But for this year, um, what about what's happening now and all the cases of strep that are going around? So the good news about strep that it has a season. Usually that's from December to April. So we could be at the tail end of it. Though epidemiologist Caitlin Rivers pointed out that the pandemic has thrown the regular winter illness patterns off a little bit. So it could go a little bit longer. Mm, well, that's not great news, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, that was NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin. Thank you so much, Sydney. You bet. As urban neighborhoods gentrify, it can be hard for people to keep up with rising rents. Some some groups are buying up land through what's called community land trusts so that longtime residents don't have to leave. Simone Rios of member station WBUR in Boston reports on how these organizations are trying to create permanent affordable housing. Tiny brick row houses cram two full city blocks just south of downtown Boston. The buildings recall a time when waves of new Americans settled in the area, first Arab, Jewish, and Irish families, and eventually families from China. Back in the day, there were hundreds of immigrant families living in these small properties. Lydia Lowe is a longtime community organizer in what's now known as Boston's Chinatown. And this whole area, because it was like landfill, so it was kind of stinky, um, it was also near a rail yard, it was very undesirable at the time. And so the only people who would live here were the immigrants. It would have been hard to imagine in the 1800s how these little buildings would become prime real estate. Fearing the historic homes would be lost, a group of activists got together in 2015 and formed a community land trust. That's a type of nonprofit that acquires properties with the goal of keeping them affordable for residents. A trust owns the land and rents or sells the homes on it. The first place the Chinatown Trust wanted to purchase was a three-unit row house. Lowe recalls they had to scrape together $1.7 million to beat bids from investors. We had to show that this was possible because nobody believed us. So this is Boston's first community land trust condo. More than 600 people applied to buy the three condos in the building. Among them was Meidan Lin, a 32-year-old restaurant server. Her family won a lottery to buy one of the condos, which sold for roughly a third of market value. Speaking through an interpreter, Lin says being a homeowner means her family can stay in Chinatown. There is no worrying about rent. And also, we have been accommodating to lives in Chinatown, and moving somewhere else would be a big culture shock. The Community Land Trust model dates back more than a half a century, developed by civil rights activists and black farmers trying to protect farmland in Georgia. John Davis of the nonprofit Center for Community Land Trust Innovation says there are now more than 300 of these trusts across the U.S. And he estimates that 20 percent of them have come online over the last decade. That's because Davis says gentrification 
has taken a toll in many urban areas. So you really lost the diversity of people, uses, businesses that keep a neighborhood vital and vibrant. So the Community Land Trust preserves affordability for housing. And he says they can also set aside spaces for what he calls low-profit businesses, like daycares, barbershops, and artist studios. One trade-off is that people who buy homes in these land trusts won't get market rate when they sell. Davis says that's so the housing stays affordable. Let's say the city gave you a $20,000 down payment grant. You're not going to walk away with that. You know? So we're going to leave that public subsidy in the home for the next home buyer. Making less profit hasn't seemed to deter people from wanting to join. Founded just five years ago, the Houston Community Land Trust now has more than 130 homes in its portfolio. That's a tiny fraction of the city's housing stock. But these homes make a huge difference to the people who live there, says Ashley Allen, who runs the trust. Most of the people that come through our program couldn't save before. They couldn't think about a 401k or college savings plan because all of their money was going to housing. Houston's mayor, however, recently decided to slash the group's funding. And high property values are making it harder for the community land trust to buy, something that poses a problem for land trusts across the country. Still, advocates say the trusts are a permanent way to help people who are struggling to stay put, even as prices around them rise. For NPR News, I'm Simone Rios in Boston. British singer-songwriter Ellie Goulding is feeling stronger than ever. Just having a quiet confidence that you can overpower someone, like a male in particular, with that confidence. Just feels good to be able to sing that. Later today on All Things Considered, Golding talks about the inspiration behind her new album and finding empowerment as a woman in a male-dominated industry. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Shh. Be quiet and listen. Your plants might be trying to tell you something. That's the sound of a thirsty tomato plant captured by scientists at Tel Aviv University. They were able to record all kinds of plants that make sounds when stressed. Biologist Lila Khadani led the study and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Welcome. Thank you. I um, am a known plant killer. <laughs> and so I forget to water them but I have not heard them making sounds or screaming. So is, is my hearing bad or is there a reason why I'm not hearing them screaming out in thirst? So of course, if they were doing these actual sounds that we are hearing now, we would have known that a long time ago. The sounds that the plants are emitting are too high for humans uh, to hear. Humans usually hear up to around 16 kilohertz Plant sounds start from around 40 kilohertz up to around 80. So, so then the sounds that we were just hearing, those are sounds that have been boosted for the human ear? These sounds are only uh, made for demonstration. So we recorded the plant sounds using very sensitive ultrasonic microphones. And then we used the computer to convert them to human hearing range. 
do we know how the plants are actually making the noise? So we are not completely sure about that, but we think that it involves uh, air bubbles appearing in the water transport of the plant, emitting a very brief ultrasonic click. Have you found that there are a range of sounds coming from different plants? Plants emit different sounds under different circumstances. So the sounds are informative. We can tell by the sound if it's a tomato or a tobacco plant, and if the tomato is dry, and if it is dry, is it slightly dry or very dry? So we can understand that using only the sounds. Who is the intended recipient of these noises? So that's the most exciting question. We know that there are animals that are capable of hearing these sounds, like moss and bats and mice. So if a moss is coming to lay eggs on the tomato, it can lay its eggs on a plant that would serve as a good host. Another direction is that other plants may be responding to the sounds. The stress of one plant is most important to the other plants neighboring it. If they know that a nearby plant is drying up, then this is time to prepare. And finally, it might also be useful uh, for agriculture. If uh, farmers can monitor the stress of the plants without touching them, we can use water more efficiently or potentially herbicides. And so is that the goal of your, your research, that it would be possibly applied to agriculture? Are there any other applications for the research? So I think the goal of my research is to understand the world better. I think that these results suggest that there is an additional a layer of information, of acoustic information, between plants and their environment. The sounds are out there and we need to interpret them. So if we have plants at home, is there a way we could just turn up a, a recorder and try to see if they, if they get in the water properly or this, this is only in the lab? Uh, there are cheaper and simpler uh, methods. <laughs> to, to find out if the plant is drying out. <laughs> at home, you don't need these sensitive microphones that we are using, but even uh, simpler sensors that can detect ultrasonic clicks can be useful. That's Lilak Hadani, a biologist at Tel Aviv University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Over the past several years, India's ruling Nationalist Party has provoked protests across the country. Critics say its policies discriminate against religious minorities and restrict free speech. Reporter Raksha Kumar brings us the story of a Muslim teenager from Mumbai who is also protesting, but with music, specifically hip-hop. Sanya Mistri Kaimuddin is 16. She has many firsts to her credit. One of the first female rappers in Mumbai, the first to rap wearing a headscarf or a hijab, and the first female rapper from the neighborhood of Govandi, which is known for heaps of solid waste strewn all over and high rates of crime. 
always be hurdles, but I never let them dampen my spirit. She sings in this song titled Bahut Deep or Very Resilient. Just the way a woman needs to be in conservative societies, she says. Like when I was rapping, at that time, मेरा कॉन्फिडेंस अलग होता है उस वक्त मेरी फीलिंग्स अलग होती है आई हैव अ डिफरेंट लेवल ऑफ कॉन्फिडेंस वेन आई एम रैपिंग शी टेल्स मी वाइल सिटिंग इन हर टाइनी होम विच शी शेयर विद हर पेरेंट्स एंड हर ब्रदर इन थ्री ईयर्स सानिया हैज बिकम द हार्ट थ्रॉब ऑफ द सिटी शी हैज बीन इन्वाइटेड टू परफॉर्म एट वेन्यूज लाइक द एन सी पी ए और मुंबई इक्विवेलेंट ऑफ द कैनेडी सेंटर She's also on a TV show that showcases young talent, a little like America's Got Talent. And she has fans. Aao fir khinch lo pehle. Two young girls stride into her small Mumbai home which is made from tin sheets and mud. They've seen Sanya rapping on TV and want a picture with her. One of them is 11-year-old Falak Naz from the same neighborhood. मुझे भी आगे आगे चल के सानिया आपकी के तरह बनने का है और मुझे उनके तरह पूरा बनने का है। I want to become like her, Falak says. But Sanya tells Falak she has it all wrong. Do not follow anyone's footsteps. Create your own path. तुम तुम्हारी ताकत हो, ठीक है? After all, that is what Sanya did with her life. Sanya's father is an auto rickshaw driver and her mother is a tailor. But despite poverty and neighbors disapproval her parents encouraged her to pursue her passion. Meri mummy ko aake aise bolna ke dekho tumhari beti kya kar rahi hai ye sari cheeze. Neighbors and acquaintances think what I'm doing is un-Islamic and they used to tell my mother to not let me shoot videos or rap she says. But Tanya didn't pause for anyone. Beti behan aur maa har roop hai mera main aurat zat ka mera khushiyon ko baatna. Sanya says she likes hip hop because the music is all about justice. Justice for black people in America, for Muslims in India and for anyone who is oppressed. Ye hip hop ka maqsad hai awareness karne ka. Hip hop is all about creating awareness, she says, and that is what I'm doing. Bhanuj Kapil is a Mumbai based music writer who has been following the city's hip hop scene closely. He says unlike mainstream popular music hip hop gives voice to minorities and allows them to express their idiosyncratic and individual identities whether that be in terms of religion in terms of caste in terms of uh sexuality and gender they are really like building on those aspects of themselves and that's an integral part of the music Sanya says she would like to be a teacher or a professional rapper or a social worker when she grows up But for now it is time for her next performance at the prestigious Indian Institute of Technology Bombay and this time the theme is gender rights For NPR news I'm Raksha Kumar in Mumbai Beti behan aur maa har roop hai mera main aurat zat ka mera khushiyon ko baatna main jaanti hu rekha ki sari pabandi ko na rekha nangti jo izzat mere haath na This is NPR news This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tomorrow is the official first day on the job for the MBTA's new general manager, and he'll be taking the tea to work. Philip Ang has four decades of transportation experience. He's taking over a system plagued by safety issues and unreliable service. Ang's schedule tomorrow includes meeting with workers at the bus maintenance facility at Cabot Yard in Boston. The Vineyard Wind Offshore Wind Project is entering a new phase. Starting tomorrow, work gets underway to lay the middle section of the cable on the ocean floor. The large wind farm will be built south of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. 
The Boston Bruins need one more victory to break the NHL record for most wins in the regular season. When the Bees defeated the Devils last night, the team picked up win number 62. That ties the NHL record. It is 43 degrees on this Easter morning. Sunny today, highs in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And JBS Home Inspections, committed to providing impartial recommendations on home improvements and repairs. JBSinspections.com. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. I'm Tiziana Deering. This is Radio Boston. I'm Scott Tong. I'm Deepa Fernandez. I'm Robin Young. It's here and now. And I'm Lisa Mullins, host of All Things Considered. We all thank you so much if you made a contribution to our recent fundraiser. And if you haven't had a chance to, you still can. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's Easter Sunday, and for the people in the seats of the Dallas megachurch, the Potter's House, the message will surely be about salvation and resurrection. T.D. Jakes established the Potter's House in 1996. Over the years, it's become one of the country's biggest churches, and Jakes, one of America's most influential religious leaders. I know you think you got saved at the altar, but the truth of the matter, you got saved when you started moving in his direction. I got up an hour early because I'm after him. I came to church because I'm after him. My body told me to stay in bed, but I'm after him. My flesh. But as Jake likes to say, don't put a period where a comma should be. And so there's T.D. Jake's comma entrepreneur. He has long been an author and done TV and movies. He won a gospel Grammy in 2003. The new push is in real estate. His company recently bought 95 acres in southwest Atlanta. And while this venture isn't connected to the Potter's House, he does see it as an extension of his faith. The problems in most major cities, as I talk to mayors, is that the people who serve the cities, police officers, nurses, uh, janitors, whatever you, cannot live in the city's farming that they that they serve in. So this is a common problem, not just to Dallas and Atlanta. It's not a unique problem. It's a serious problem in a lot of areas. And, and, and so, you know, you look at Redfin, there's a house near the area that was like 44,000 in 1995, 235,000 last year. So how will this development make sure that the prices of the houses are in a way that are affordable for those police officers and nurses and et cetera. Well, we're going to have a wide range. When you say mixed income, that you want to cover the waterfront, there are going to be some latex, low income, 
uh, housing developments or certain quota of those homes are going to be more affordable than others. I'm a big fan of mixed income housing because sociologically, uh, when you build all low income housing, we've already done that. We've seen that movie play out and it didn't have a happy ending. Our mission is to do well by doing good. Michael Phillips works alongside Bishop Jakes as chief operating officer. Every facet of our business, whether we're making movies, whether we are making music, whether we are doing an event or a venture, uh, is all centered around doing well by doing good and the social impact it's going to have as an outcome, as a metric of return for us. So it, this idea has been around for a long time, and I know about T.D. Jakes, uh, about the, the movies produced and things of that nature. I guess, is, is real estate, has that always been a part of this, or is that a new part of the venture? No, real estate has always been a part of the enterprise, uh, our media company, uh, Dexterity Media, where a lot of our movies come out, has always been a part of the enterprise. Uh, our Dexterity uh, Sounds, our music uh, division, has always been a part of the enterprise. But that enterprise operates in the marketplace. Capitalism, winners and losers. It can be a far cry from the pulpit of a church and the Bible's lessons on charity and works of mercy. You can't be philanthropic without being entrepreneurial. If you're going to help people, you're going to have to be entrepreneurial to be able to have resources to be able to help people. Uh, the two go hand in hand. American evangelism is littered with the names of high-profile leaders who fell short of their calling when they strayed too far into the secular world. In fact, Jakes bought the building that would become the Potter's House from a televangelist who had been convicted of tax evasion. Bishop Jakes, though, says whatever he does is rooted to the same mission, whether preaching to thousands from the altar, connecting through the pages of a book or the tracks of an album, or making deals in the C-suite, he says he remains rooted in Jesus and in service to his community. And he acknowledges that what ministering looks like may shift in an increasingly changing world. I'm not hooked on a mega church. I didn't get saved in a mega church. I didn't start in a mega church, and I'm not uh, the face of the mega church. I, I got saved in a storefront. So uh, I love to do what I do, irrespective. There's always going to be change, as long as there is society and cultural changes, there will be changes. But the church has always survived. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And at the time he said it, he was outside. There was no building at all and the church has survived. It is a concept, it is a fellowship, it is a, a living, breathing uh, entity for which Christ died. And it doesn't matter the location, whether it's in a house or a barn or a tent like we used to do, or a mega church or a mini church. What many people do not understand about the quote unquote black church is that it is still the gateway to the black community that there is no entity that sees more black people on a weekly basis than the church. It's not that we all go to church, but we all know somebody in our family that goes to church. We can't say that about anything else. The club doesn't do it. Nothing else does it. The church does it. So if there are business people listening at me and they're trying to find a way to reach underserved communities, but they're trying to avoid the church, I understand the business reason why you would, that's why I set up the TDJX Foundation, where you don't have to support my message, but you can help with my mission. 
And so my mission is more than my message. And so I think churches have to be creative about their organizational construct to develop, like we did, a real estate ventures company, if that's what you want to do. Or maybe if you're more into music, a record label. You have to reach the world. Jesus did it by boat. <laughs> Jesus preached his sermons on a boat. Jesus preached in the desert, but that doesn't mean I have to stay in the desert or live on a boat in order to be effective to my call. That's Bishop T.D. Jakes, who is also CEO and chairman of the T.D. Jakes Group. He's also author of the forthcoming book, Disruptive Thinking. Bishop, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Oh, Miss Tilly, I think you should know Everyone's missing you here. That lush, layered contralto voice can belong to only one person, Natalie Merchant, the one-time lead singer of 10,000 Maniacs, the multi-platinum creator of Tiger Lily, the environmentalist, film director, mother, and artist in residence at a preschool. Uh, she does it all. She's out with her ninth solo album, Keep Your Courage, and joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's dive into that tune, Sister Tilly. You're singing about a character who wears Joan Didion sunglasses. <laughs> who is Sister Tilly? And, and what were you getting at by writing this song? Sister Tilly is an amalgam of women I've known in my life, of my mother's generation. You've gone so far away that you're gone. And I've combined them all into one person to kind of pay tribute to that generation and everything they mean to me. Through the first part of the song, it's in 3-4, and I'm talking about, you know, remembering all the aspects of her, even the color of her walls and her tinctures, her teas, her secret remedies, and <laughs> her voice like Buffy St. Marie. And um, I keep saying she's gone away, but it isn't until the time signature changes. We go into 4-4. Four, four, and then it becomes this series of lyrics that just talk about releasing her, letting her go. and you realize she's passed on. A lot of this album is about love. You know, when you have to protect yourself, like love is where you're most vulnerable. Come on, Aphrodite, you goddess of love. Come on, Aphrodite, from that mountain above. You are at a point where people can really hurt you when you love them, right? That's the deepest hurt, right? And they can hurt you unintentionally. Unintentionally, yes. Come on, Aphrodite, can't you see that I've been patient? Come on, Aphrodite, can't you see how long I've waited? And yeah, on this album, Every time I used love, I was describing love in a different form, whether it was platonic or romantic or this kind of expansive, inclusive love. And then the song, Come on Aphrodite, 
It's an invocation to the goddess of love and passion, saying, bring it on, right? <laughs> and then the song, Big Girls, it said, ooh, it hurts. Yes. <laughs> Always thought the game came easy. You never thought about it twice. You never thought about it twice. That that really, you know, that got me in my my feelings when I said, you know, it kind of made me tear up, you know, because it's talking about, you know, how you hold all this pain inside and, and never show them that you cry. And where were you coming from with that? I think when people recognize your pain. Mm-hmm. That's usually when you can break down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not just a song about loss in lo- love. It's a loss in life and just difficulties in life. Yeah. It's, it's a powerful thing that's called empathy. And when you feel that someone's empathizing with you and feeling your pain, it, it is a remarkable thing that happens to us. Believe that There's only one way to survive you got to hold on to your pride. Big girls, they don't cry. And at the end, uh, Abana Kumsun Davis, who's singing with me, we're addressing the audience the whole time. We're addressing everyone and saying, just hold on. And there are all these images at the end of ships wrecking and storms and floods and <laughs> wrecking balls. And, uh, but we keep saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. How did you meet her and, and, and how did you come to collaborate with her? Abana Kumsun Davis is the musical director of the Resistance Revival Chorus. And I met her through doing a Get Out the Vote event in the Hudson Valley. We actually staged the largest political event in the history of, of our area. And I just fell in love with her voice and her energy and told her that I would love to collaborate someday. And once I had these songs written, we went in the studio and and put them together. One of um, NPR's music reviewers said back in 2014 um, about you that you have a subdued yet unmistakable air of a woman who finds pop stardom rather distasteful. And he meant that as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great compliment. (laughs) Is that true? Like, is that, what is your relationship to fame? Because you've had, like, massive hits. And I I don't know, like, you you are a star, right? So what is your relationship to fame? I've had massive hits and sold lots of records, but... I can walk into a store and hand someone my credit card and they can say, oh, you have the same name as a famous singer. (laughs) And I say, yeah, I know. (laughs) And you don't go, I'm her. (laughs) And the best was when I was in the hospital and the emergency room was just packed with people and I was was on a gurney in the the hallway and this woman walks by me with a picture of me on her phone and she she points to it and goes, you look just like Natalie Merchant. I went, I am, and she just laughed at me. walking. I thought, this is going to get me in a room, and it didn't. I stayed in the hallway for another two hours. So, but, like, is that okay with you, you know, being able to go to the grocery oh, store? Oh, I prefer it. Know? Yeah, yeah. I prefer it. By transcendent praise of And mostly my encounters with people, if they do recognize me, is just 
Miss Merchant, I really appreciate your work, or it's very meaningful to me. And that's, that's really a lovely exchange to have. And to meet people who feel like we already have some kind of relationship established. Because you started out in your, your early years with 10,000 Maniacs and other. Is there anything you wish you knew then that you know now? How to eat properly. Mm. And the strange thing is, when I started with 10,000 Maniacs, I met them when I was 16. I think we formed the band when I was 17. We made our first record when I was 18. I remember we were in rehearsal one day and the bass player said, let's, let's go to the bridge. And I, I was like, what's a bridge? I didn't even know the nomenclature. I didn't know how to even name the parts of a song. Mm -hmm. So I really learned everything through doing. Mm -hmm. I hope that people don't hold those records from the early 80s up to the work that I'm doing now. As a part of your upcoming tour, you're supposed to be performing with an orchestra at the Lincoln Center in New York and Disney Hall in L.A. and the National Symphony. Did young Natalie ever envision this for herself? No. Yeah. Never. Yeah. But my mother was my mother was a massive fan of classical music and mm -hmm. she was a single mom with four kids, so no money. And um we lived near Chautauqua Institution, which had orchestra concerts in the summer every Tuesday and Saturday night. And we would sneak in a hole in the fence and go to the symphony. Mm. So from the time I was really young, I really have a great appreciation for symphonic music and to be standing in front of an orchestra, it's such a privilege. Come later. That singer-songwriter Natalie Merchant, her latest album, Keep Your Courage, is coming out this week. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Don't stop your search now. Go by the grace of God. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with services to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or Staples.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join us Saturday, April 22nd at City Space for a Climate Hope concert. The event blends music, video, and storytelling to create an immersive celebration of the planet. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It's 43 degrees in Boston on this Easter Sunday. Sunshine, highs in the upper 40s. WBUR supporters include Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com.
When a freight train crashes, it may have more cars, more cargo, and more destructive force than trains did years ago. In the past, about a 1.4 mile long train was considered huge. Now trains are two, even three miles long. And the longer trains have smaller crews. Is this less safe? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Happy Easter. Dueling court opinions have left the future of a key abortion drug in jeopardy. Find out how the White House is responding. And the Wisconsin election that wrapped up last week was the most expensive state Supreme Court race in U.S. history. We take a look at the impact of all of that money. Plus, fresh crispy fries get all of the attention, but we hear the case for the imperfect leftover fries. Give soggy fries a chance. They're just delicious in their own way. They're soft and chewy. The mushiness is actually kind of the point. It's Sunday, April 9th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. One of the two Tennessee lawmakers ousted for protesting gun violence on the statehouse floor could soon return to the statehouse. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, a majority of members on the Nashville Metropolitan Council have indicated they will vote to send Justin Jones back to the seat from which he was just expelled. Justin Jones of Nashville and Justin Pearson of Memphis were expelled Thursday from their seats. The two, along with fellow Democrat Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, joined protesters demanding gun control days after a mass shooting at a Christian school. Nashville Vice Mayor Jim Shulman says the council has received hundreds of emails and phone calls asking for Jones to be sent back to the statehouse. And Shulman says he shares that sentiment. We well, understand the need for decorum, understand that they violated the decorum, but to, to expel them? from the legislature? No, no, we don't do that. The Nashville Council is set to hold a special meeting Monday afternoon, just ahead of House lawmakers gathering for a floor session. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Easter, Ramadan, and Passover are coinciding this year, leading to new calls for peace around the world. At the Vatican... Pope Francis celebrated Easter Mass this morning. After the ceremony, the Pope turned his attention to bloody conflicts around the world. Delivering the pontiff's annual Easter message, Orbi at Orbi, to the city and the world from a balcony at St. Peter's Basilica at age 86 and recently released from a hospital recovering from bronchitis, the Pope offered prayers for peace in Ukraine, the wounded, those in despair, and for the return of prisoners on both sides. Focusing on bloody conflicts, he said, let us make haste to surmount our conflicts and divisions. 
Small groups of Jewish worshipers have been escorted under a heavy police guard to mark the Passover holiday at Jerusalem's Temple Mount compound. The site, known to Muslims as the Al-Aqsa Mosque, is the holiest site in Judaism and the third holiest in Islam. The BBC's Yolanda Nell is in Jerusalem. Really, it remains a kind of tense standoff. There are Palestinian Muslim worshippers who have remained in the mosque overnight. They've now located themselves on the courtyard there and have been uh, conducting their prayers as Israeli police continue to conduct visits around the site, escorting several hundred Jewish visitors, religious Jews in the main, who have come to the Western Wall for the priestly blessing later and are also wanting during this Passover pilgrimage occasion to go uh, to the site that they call as Temple Mount. The BBC's Yolanda Nell reporting from Jerusalem. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA's new general manager, Philip Eng, begins his tenure tomorrow. He has a full day of public events planned, and we'll talk with reporters in the morning outside Park Street Station after taking his first tea commute as GM. Transit advocate Stacy Thompson of the Livable Streets Alliance says she thinks Eng will take a measured approach to the job. I seriously doubt, based on his experience, that he's going to come in like a tornado and change everything overnight. I expect him to take his time, get to know folks, but there will be some very urgent things he needs to address. Thompson says reliable service tops the list. For the past month, T passengers have had longer commutes as trains are forced to slow down in areas of track that are being inspected or repaired. Area churches are holding Easter celebrations. Roman Catholic Cardinal Sean O'Malley will celebrate Mass at the Cathedral of the Holy Cross. In Charlestown, the USS Constitution hosted a public Easter sunrise service. A proposed transition line through Maine that is critical to clean energy in Massachusetts is about to face a court challenge. A trial is scheduled to begin tomorrow in Portland on the $1 billion New England Clean Energy Connect. It would bring hydroelectric power from Canada into Massachusetts. The developer of the transmission line is challenging a state order in Maine to halt construction. Work is entering a new phase on the large wind farm that's going to be built south of Nantucket in Martha's Vineyard, a section of cable to connect to the Vineyard Wind Offshore Wind Project will be laid on the ocean floor. One person was killed in an overnight fire in Hopkinton. Firefighters say an elderly couple was trapped as fire raced through their home on Hayward Street. Crews from surrounding communities had to be called in to help fight the fire. It's 45 degrees in Boston now. Sunshine today with highs in the upper 40s. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s. A sunny Monday, tomorrow's temperatures in the low 60s. Tuesday, sunshine, high around 70. WBUR supporters include LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us. It's been a big week for abortion news in the U.S. First, a candidate who favors abortion rights won a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Janet Protasewicz. Our state is taking a step forward to a better and brighter future where our rights and freedoms will be protected. And then two federal judges handed down contradictory rulings on the abortion drug Mifepristone. NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliasson's here with us to sort it all out. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So let's take the court rulings first. They came on Friday evening. A Texas judge ordered the FDA essentially to take an abortion pill off the market. A judge in Washington told the agency to keep it available. So, so what are we supposed to make of all of this? I think we just have to wait for the Supreme Court to resolve this. Mifepristone is a common abortion pill. It's taken in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. More than half of all abortions in the United States now are done using medication as opposed to surgery. And there's a two-drug combination, Mifepristone is one of them, that's used for almost every single one of these medical abortions. And what's really interesting for abortion politics is that the plaintiffs in this suit, anti-abortion groups, are not saying that the regulation of mifepristone should be up to the states, which is what the Dobbs decision did when it overturned Roe, they're actually asking for what would be in effect a national ban on this drug. They are arguing that the FDA 23 years ago made the wrong decision when it said this drug was safe. And that's why this case has such potentially far-reaching implications, because the Supreme Court is now going to have to decide whether a federal judge can reassess the judgment of a federal agency, in this case, the FDA. Now, what about that election in Wisconsin? Because, you know, whether people agree with it or not, some states let people elect justices to their highest courts directly. Wisconsin is one of them. And Janet Protasewicz um, was quite open about her support for abortion rights. That's right. Now the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin has a majority of liberal judges. What's really interesting to me politically is the Republican reaction to this loss from the Wall Street Journal editorial page and many other voices are saying, Republicans, can't you read the handwriting on the wall? You keep restricting abortion laws and voters keep rejecting you in red states like Kansas and now a battleground state like Wisconsin. Why don't you try to find some middle ground on abortion? The problem is that the anti-abortion forces won the legal battle when they overturned Roe, but they didn't win the political battle, the battle for public opinion. So Republicans in the Wisconsin legislature had the opportunity to find some middle ground, which could be something like Roe, keeping abortion mostly legal with restrictions or mostly illegal with exceptions. But instead, they left an 1849 law on the books banning all abortions. That gave Janet Protasewicz a huge target, and she hit it. She won by 11 points. So what are the lessons here for the GOP? Like, are other red states going to back off from their hard line on abortion restrictions? It doesn't look like that right now. Republicans who control most red state legislatures are moving forward with more restrictive abortion laws. Florida, for instance, has a 15-week ban, but now the Florida state legislature is about to pass a six-week ban. Six weeks is earlier than most women even know that they're pregnant. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has his eye firmly fixed on the people who vote in Republican presidential primaries, intends to sign that law. 
So that's DeSantis. Um, but what about the leading Republican presidential contender, Donald Trump? I mean, he has had concerns about Republicans' approach to uh, abortions, right? That's right. And what's really interesting, back in January, he had pretty much the same perspective as the Wall Street Journal editorial page on abortion restrictions and what they would mean for Republican candidates. He blamed the Republican Party's poor showing in the 20. 20- 22 elections on the fact that Roe was gone. And on Truth Social, which is his social media platform, he posted this tweet. He said, it was the abortion issue poorly handled by many Republicans, especially those that firmly insisted on no exceptions, even in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother that lost large numbers of voters. And he went on to diss his own evangelical supporters by saying, quote, the people that pushed so hard for decades against abortion got their wish from the Supreme Court and just plain disappeared not to be seen again. I would say some of those evangelical activists are saying, thank you, President Trump, for the 7-2 majority that overturned Roe. Now can we please move on without you? So that's just an example of how abortion politics are dividing the Republican Party. NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliason, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. As we mentioned, Wisconsin voters elected a pro-abortion rights judge to the state Supreme Court. The election also set a new record for most expensive state Supreme Court race, over $40 million by one estimate. And all that money has raised concerns about the independence of state courts. Alicia Bannon is director of the Judiciary Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. She's written about the problems with the current system and some possible solutions. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So what can this very expensive election in Wisconsin tell us about the state of judicial elections around the country? Judicial elections used to be really sleepy affairs, and that is no longer the case. We've increasingly been seeing high-cost, very politicized judicial elections with a lot of money and a lot of special interest attention because state Supreme Courts are increasingly important venues for protecting key rights like abortion rights, also democracy issues, partisan gerrymandering was very much on the ballot as well in Wisconsin. And so I think increasingly we are going to see more and more money pouring into these races, particularly in states like Wisconsin, where there may be an opportunity to shift the ideological direction of a court. I mean, how do other states handle selecting judges? Because they don't all run on elections, right? So it varies across the country. 38 states use elections as part of their system for choosing their highest court judges. In 22 states, and this includes Wisconsin, judges stand in contested elections where you can have multiple candidates vying for a seat. Several other states, 16, use an appointment retention system where judges are initially appointed to the bench, but then they stand in up or down retention elections. And then in the remainder of the states, they're either appointments by the governor or in two states, we have appointments by the state legislature. So there's quite a bit of variation, but elections are quite common. And the U.S. is quite unique in that front. And I think there is good reason for that. Judges aren't supposed to be politicians in robes. Judges are supposed to be deciding cases based on the law in front of them and the facts in front of them. What could be some possible solutions to those concerns? I know you've written about nominating commissions and argued that they're the best way to go on this, but what is a nominating commission and how would that work? So I'd highlight 
two reforms to think about in response to the the world that we live in right now with these highly politicized high cost judicial races one would be moving towards a publicly accountable appointment system and as part of that having a nominating commission that's independent of the governor that vets judicial candidates in the first instance and provides a short list to the governor if you have a diverse commission and they operate transparently that can be a really powerful way of limiting the influence of special interests and addressing some of the concerns about crony dynamics that otherwise can be a big concern in appointment systems. The other reform that I would lift up would be thinking about moving towards a lengthy single term for state Supreme Court justices rather than having them stand up for new elections or reappointment processes. Because in almost every state, judges have to stand for some kind of reselection process. And that is the moment where judicial independence is most at risk. When you have judges that are hearing cases having to think about how their decisions are going to play out in the next judicial election. And there's a lot of evidence that that actually is the case. So judges sentence more harshly in election years. There's evidence that judges' behavior change when they hit a mandatory retirement age and are no longer going to have a reselection moment. They suddenly start behaving a lot more independently. How do you avoid nominating commissions also being like swayed by politics? In terms of how you can design a nominating commission to minimize those kinds of special interest influence, it's very important to think about exactly how you're designing that commission as well as how that commission operates. So you wanna have commissions that are operating in public whose decision-making is done in a transparent way so that you don't have backroom negotiations. And it's very important how those commissioners get selected. The current system has, you know, benefits for political parties. Is there a movement where there actually could be reforms and has something like this happened before? So we haven't seen a lot of movement around judicial selection reform in the states in the past several decades. But if you look back in American history, we have seen these waves in the past. So judicial elections, for example, they didn't exist at all in the time of the founding. They came about in the later part of the 19th century as a judicial independence reform. People were concerned that judges were too closely tied to the political branches. And so judicial elections were seen as an accountability mechanism. Later, there was a wave where you saw a host of nonpartisan judicial elections take effect because there were concerns about the influence of political parties. And then in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you had a move towards merit selection systems, where you had the adoption in many states of nominating commission systems coupled with retention elections. And so we've seen that happen in the past. And I think we may be in a moment or coming to a moment where there could be another opportunity for such a wave. That's Alicia Bannon, Director of the Judiciary Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR on this Easter Sunday. WBUR's Andrea Shea 
brings us an expert who traces the origins of the jelly bean to Boston. Starting tomorrow each morning this week at 10 o'clock, On Point is exploring the power of populism. Listen tomorrow and every day this week at 10 a.m. here on 90.9 WBUR and the WBUR app. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Their employment lawyers have your work cut out for them. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. China is conducting a second day of military drills around Taiwan, continuing to register its disapproval of meetings that Taiwan's president had in California with American lawmakers. Easter, Ramadan and Passover are coinciding this year, leading to new calls for peace around the world. At the Vatican, Pope Francis offered prayers for peace in Ukraine and the return of prisoners on both sides. Tournament officials in Augusta, Georgia this morning say that Tiger Woods has withdrawn from Masters golf play due to injury after completing seven holes of his third round. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Russia's one of the world's biggest diamond suppliers, and the sale of the product is an important source of revenue for the country. So far, the gems have not been subjected to the same kind of sanctions that the country's oil and banking industries have faced. But NPR's Jackie Northam reports there are efforts underway to change that. The port city of Antwerp, Belgium, has been the capital of the diamond trade for hundreds of years, with traders and jewelers concentrated within a picture book area of the city less than a square mile in size. Now, the war in Ukraine has arrived at Antwerp's door. The European Union has tried several times to sanction Russian diamonds, but Belgium prevented it. There's always been a pushback. Belgium is the only player in the diamonds business in, in the EU, so it's only also the only country who would have, who would feel the impact of any sanctions. Hans Merkut is with the Antwerp-based International Peace Information Service, a group for human rights and sustainable development. He says for Antwerp, what's at stake are the diamonds coming from one Russian mine called El Rosa, partly owned by the Russian government. El Rosa is the biggest business partner of the Antwerp diamond industry. It guarantees an inflow of, of a substantial amount of diamonds that represent one-fourth or so 25% of all rough diamond imports into Antwerp every year. Merkut says Belgian traders argue that if the EU bans Russian diamonds, 
the stones will just find another way onto the market, most likely Dubai, which is Antwerp's biggest competitor. Marty Hurwitz is the CEO of MVI, a research company specializing in gems and jewelry. He says Russia is the largest producer of rough or unpolished diamonds in the world by volume. The Alrosa mine is in the four to five billion dollars a year size of business in terms of their rough sales. It's a gigantic part of the diamond economy. Hurwitz says those revenues are going into the Kremlin's coffers for the war in Ukraine. Because these diamonds are unquestionably the textbook definition of blood diamonds. They are helping to fund that war. But banning Russian diamonds could be hard to do. About 95% of the world's rough diamonds go to India. And there's the loophole. Indian manufacturers bring in stones from mines all over the world. They're often mixed together to fill an order. So a bag of Russian rough stones could get mixed, cut and polished with some from Botswana or Canada, said Merkut. And by that time, they're not considered as Russian diamonds anymore. At that point, the diamonds are considered mixed origin and could easily include Russian ones. Additionally, a diamond can easily change hands 20 or 30 times by the time it goes from the mine to the customer. Stephen Morisot is a spokesman for the Gemological Institute of America. There is no scientific or technical way to identify the origin of a specific polished diamond. You, you just can't look at it and observe its characteristics and say, this came from country X. So Russian diamonds can turn up anywhere, including the U.S., which sanctioned them not long after the invasion of Ukraine. Currently, the only system certifying a diamond's origin is the so-called Kimberley process, which was set up to end the sale of blood diamonds. It certifies the stone's origin when it comes out of the mine, but doesn't track it after that. The U.S., its G7 allies, and the EU are talking about ways to better track diamonds. Some companies have already been tracking diamonds from the mine to the showroom for years. Yeah. This is our nature-inspired collection. Some of our most popular ring styles are here. The showroom of Brilliant Earth Jewelry Store in Bethesda, Maryland, is decorated in muted earth tones. The polished diamonds on display twinkle in the afternoon sunlight. These two diamonds here that we have are both from Botswana sort. Brilliant Earth, which has two dozen shops across the U.S., promotes traceability of its diamonds and other gems. Its CEO, Beth Gerstein, says a diamond is added to a blockchain, an immutable database, from the moment it's unearthed from a mine. Diamond A with mine operator X. And then as soon as it gets sold to a specific diamond manufacturer, that manufacturer now gets added to the database. Now, let's say that gets traded to a wholesaler. The wholesaler gets added. And so you have this complete document of the entire chain of custody of the diamond that is embedded in technology. And if everyone in the diamond industry can play by the same rules, Belgium might just agree to an EU ban on Russian diamonds. Jackie Northam, NPR News. If it seems like your airplane crew when you fly is warning you of turbulence more often these days and turning on the fasten seatbelt light, you might be on to something. Research is showing that a warming climate is contributing to bumpier skies. Here to talk about that is NPR's Scott Newman. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Aisha. Glad to be here. 
So, Scott, I, I had never heard of this this research um, linking turbulence to climate change, but apparently, I guess it goes back a decade or so. Like, like what what made you start looking into this? Well, some pretty extreme events aboard commercial flights recently have been hitting the news and highlighting the issue. Uh, probably some of our listeners have seen photos from a Lufthansa flight last month from Austin, Texas to Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, it experienced significant turbulence. So there are food trays, pillows, and other items strewn about the cabin. But more importantly, several people were injured on that flight, and the plane was forced to divert to Washington, Dulles. Ingrid Weiss was aboard another flight last month from Portland to Honolulu, although it didn't get much media attention. Weiss's flight also experienced an extended patch of pretty severe turbulence. She was flying with her husband and two young sons. The family lives in Hawaii, and they're pretty experienced flyers, but she told me that it was nothing like they'd ever seen. Yeah, it was like an hour straight of turbulence, and the last 20 to 30 minutes, many people were screaming like so many people vomited that after the turbulence stopped, they had to run out and like pass out um, more vomit bags. Oh my, my goodness. So what does research say about all this? Like why is turbulence getting worse for airline passengers and, and what does that have to do with climate? First off, we should probably clarify a few things. What's happening here is really an increase in wind shear. That's a sudden change in the speed or direction of the wind, and that in turn is triggering more turbulence, specifically a type known as clear air turbulence. Like the name implies, clear air turbulence isn't caused by bad weather. It happens in clear air above the clouds. That can make it virtually impossible for pilots to see ahead of time. The other thing to note is that while the incidents we just discussed might have happened anyway, the warming climate is making them more likely. Paul Williams is a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Reading in England. He's a leading researcher on the topic. He says that looking at satellite data since 1979 shows a 15% increase in wind shear, and he attributes that to climate change. And Williams and his colleagues say there could be as much as a tripling of wind shear in the next 30 to 60 years. Is there anything technology-wise that can be done to avoid clear air turbulence? Well, there's an app for it. A cockpit-mounted iPad or tablet that senses vibration can make automatic real-time reports, allowing pilots to see where the turbulence is. But that's not foolproof. It relies on other planes first going through the turbulence in order to send a report. And of course, not every pilot uses the app. Beyond that, there's really not much that pilots and co-pilots can do other than to make changes once they experience turbulence. Changing altitude is a common tactic, as is slowing down the plane. Uh, So, you know, what should passengers do to stay safe? Well, that's easy. It's just like they say during the safety briefing, stay buckled up while seated, even if the fastened seatbelt sign isn't on. Okay, so that that means it's much more important to actually follow instructions. Um, that's NPR's Scott Newman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. It's my pleasure. you're at a fast food joint. You get a burger and fries, but when the meal comes out, the fries, instead of being crispy and crunchy, they're just a bit soggy. Sort of limp and oily instead of potato-y. Would you be sad? 
Well, before you throw them away, Karen Yuen says we need to give more props to Soggy Fries. She says they are not that bad, and we need to give them a try. <laughs> she wrote about her love of Soggy Fries and Bon Appetit and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So where did your love of Soggy Fries come from? So soggy fries are so underrated. Um, I will die on this soggy, <laughs> soggy hill. <laughs> on a very mushy hill. This oily, soggy, mushy hill. Um, so I have loved soggy fries ever since I was a kid. Mm. I was first introduced to them through McDonald's, which has the best ones in my opinion. Okay, that's interesting, though, because when I think of McDonald's french fries, they're very hard, they're very crispy. That's when they're best. But you're saying the soggy fries that kind of fall to the bottom of the bag, you're saying those are the best. Exactly. So my family really went to McDonald's. But when we did, I'd always beg for fries and it would come in this carton of gorgeous crispy fries. But there'd always be a couple of weird ones, like these long floppy fries that just are absolutely drenched in oil. You know, you can tell that they're not really meant to be there, but they were... yeah. Just fun to eat, and I think there's definitely a very childlike joy to soggy fries. I'm going to tell you what I think makes a soggy fry good, then I'm going to ask you. So, I eat steak and french fries, right? And then sometimes the steak has this little juices and stuff. Then you get the fry in the steak juice. Then you eat that soggy fry. Oh, my goodness. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, steak fries are like a whole other thing. Like, I I think they're so underrated too, you know? They're just these huge chunks of potato. And then you, yeah, drench them in some kind of sauce. Perfect. They're awesome. So, but, but what do you think makes a soggy fry good? So, I know the thing is soggy fries are definitely kind of sad and depressed looking. Like, by no means am I saying they're <laughs> the best kind of fries. Like, maybe they are, but I mean, they're just delicious in their own way. They're soft and chewy. The mushiness is actually kind of the point, especially, you know, if you have a bit of a crispy to balance it out. They're great in like dishes like poutine. They're perfect to cover with gravy, some kind of curry sauce. They're perfect. So what was the reaction at Bon Appetit when you pitched the story? Because I would think at Bon Appetit, they would be like, are you crazy? This is like pitching like well done steak or something. <laughs> this is like pitching. Oh, like, 100%. You know, like pitching like rare know, chicken. Like, exactly. Yes. Or something. Something that is just like, we don't do this. We want the fries crispy. So what was their reaction when you pitched this? I definitely got some raised eyebrows from my colleagues. I would say generally our staff is anti-soggy fry. So I felt like I had to kind of do my part and rally for, you know, the underdog. We were talking about how there's been just generally a, actually a little bit of a trend towards trying to find the perfect crispy fry. That's how all of this came about. There are yeah, these yeah. food startups that are developing and designing all sorts of like delivery containers to make sure that fast food delivery can stay crispy. And I, I just figured, you know, there's been too much anti-soggy fry rhetoric. It's, it's time, to, time to speak up for them a little. So I, I do have to ask you, though, how do you make leftover fries into good soggy fries? Um, well, I would definitely not call this a proper recipe, but um, it's very easy to make your own soggy fries at home. You know, all you have to do is grab your leftover fries, put them in a closed container, seal them up, make sure the moisture is trapped, essentially, and then wait just like an hour or so, and they will sog up. <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be soggy. You don't have to put them in the microwave or nothing. Just let them be soggy. Exactly. Let them go through their natural course. 
Karen Yuen is the culture editor at Bon Appetit and has written an ode to soggy fries. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR's Weekend Edition. I'm Sharon Brody. It's Easter. Countless chocolate bunnies and bright yellow marshmallow peeps are nestled in many a festive basket or have been extracted from the basket and have fulfilled their mission as holiday goodies. Then there's the humble but storied jelly bean. As it turns out, that colorful candy's origins can be traced to Boston. WBUR's Andrea Shea presents an audio time capsule with food historian Susan Benjamin, who's happy to hop us back to the beginning. Every time you eat the jelly bean, what you're doing is you're taking a bite of history. It seems that the jelly bean began in Boston with a guy named William Schraft, who had one of the greatest candy-making facilities in the country in the late 1800s. He was always experimenting, coming up with wondrous chocolates, and really set the pace for candy in the U.S. He wound up taking something called the Turkish Delight, which actually originated around the year 900, somewhere around there, and creating a candy which had a hard sugar shell. The Turkish Delight is really best described, if you don't know what it is, as the middle of a jelly bean. I mean, it just had this wonderful kind of soft, luscious texture, and it was covered with powdered sugar so that the pieces wouldn't stick. How it got to Boston, nobody really knows, but likely there was this influx of people from Europe and they all knew about the Turkish delight. The jelly bean has this crunchy shell and then you bite into it and it's this wondrous kind of soft texture. The colors were bright, they were bold, they were fun. The jelly bean's original shape was bigger than what we know today and very much less bean-like. It was almost like an oval. The name jelly bean is kind of a question, but it probably came from the term jelly bean, which referred to the kind of guy who was what was known as a fop or a dandy, who would show up in pictures all dressed up in arrogant and glamorous in his own eyes, but the chocolate box he was bringing for his date would 
was open and the chocolate was spilling out, the flower petals were falling off the flowers. He's just a curbstone cutie, his mama's pride and beauty. They call him the jelly bean, parts his hair in the middle and plasters it down. Scatters little jelly beans all around town, why the girls all love it. In the 1930s, as the jelly beans started showing up on tops of cakes or mixed with other candies, it made sense that it would show up in Easter baskets because it was very spring-like. It looked like a little egg or it looked like a seed or a bean that would encourage growth. So what do we have as Easter symbols? Flowers, little bunnies hopping around, little chicks. The peeps were around at that time. And of course, what else but the jelly bean? For the people of Boston, where the jelly bean originated, what better candy to have after the long, gray, dark winters? It just tells us spring is here, things will start blooming, and the gray is gone. Food historian Susan Benjamin owns True Treats Historic Candy Shop in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Our audio postcard was produced by WBUR's Andrea Shea. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, Masters in Clinical Mental Health Counseling. Whether you prefer typical academic or individualized learning, you'll thrive. Experientially based classes are led by supportive faculty. No GRE required, state licensure eligible. Accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. And Exclusion U, a film about the controversy over Ivy League admissions and endowments. World premiere in Cambridge, April 17th. Registration at exclusionletteru.com. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, the untold story of how the Boston Marathon's volunteer medical team responded to the bombings 10 years ago and how they healed each other. A week of special coverage begins tomorrow morning. And here's a great convenient way to check in with WBUR, the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. Hi, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here with a big, big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our spring fundraiser. You put us over the top and you helped fuel WBUR. How lucky we are to have you in our lives. If you didn't get a chance to give and you still want to, go to WBUR.org and click on the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from the Sai Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle.
Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Mark Maxwell Smith, who's a famous TV writer and producer. I said, think of an eight-letter word for a certain musician, switch the order of the second and fourth letters, and you'll get a word for a certain writer. What words are these? And the answer is sitarist and satirist. Oh, wow. Okay. I would not have gotten that. Uh, <laughs> now, now, this challenge, though, it was very popular. There were nearly 900 correct entries, and Terrence Bennett of Upper Black Eddy, Pennsylvania, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Oh, boy, probably playing in my head since the, the postcard days, you know, way back with Leanne Hansen. Um, but as a submitter, uh, only since the online times. Oh, okay. And have you submitted a whole bunch of times? Um, it, it's it's very sporadic, uh, pretty infrequently, probably less than 5% of the time. Okay. But this time, you hit it big. Yeah. What a, what a nice <laughs> surprise. <laughs> And so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Ah, well, I work in higher ed as a librarian at a college. I like to, to go for long walks or occasionally bike rides. And I do like doing crossword puzzles. So, and, and as a librarian, I feel like you are really going to do great at this puzzle. That's what I'm <laughs> feeling. <laughs> well, it is a myth about our profession that we've read all the books that we're surrounded by. <laughs> Well, you've read most of them. I know. You've read most of them. <laughs> well, Terrence, are you ready to play the puzzle? I hope so. Okay. Well, take it away, Will. All right, Terrence and Aisha. It's spring, and today I've brought a game of categories based on the word birds. For each category I give, name something in it, starting with each of the letters B, I, R, D, and S. For example, if the category were flowers, you might say buttercup, iris, rose, daisy, and snapdragon. Any answer that works is okay, and you can give the answers in any order. Oh, wow. And you know I don't like birds, Will. Did you know that? I did not know that, and you're going to hate the first category then because it is birds. <laughs> All right. Well, I love birds, so let uh, me try. Okay. Sparrow. Sparrow? You said sparrow. There, sparrow, there. You got an Robin. S. Yes. Dodo, Dodo. There's your D. Dove and duck also work. B and I. B and I. Bobolink. Bobolink, good. Blackbird, bluebird, there's some others. And there's one I in four letters. It appears in crosswords a lot. Oh, I, I just... You got it. All right. Category two is state capitals. State capitals, okay. Um, Raleigh. Yes. For R. Dover for D. Yes. Springfield for F. Uh huh. You need B and I. B and I. Baton Rouge. Good. All you need is an I. There's just one. Just one. Oh, uh, Indianapolis. Indianapolis, Indiana is right. Thanks. And here's your last category things you might keep in a medicine cabinet. No brand names. No brand names. F. Sleeping pills? Sleeping pills, sure. Razors? Razors, yes. B, bandages? Bandages, yes. You need I and D. Um, iodine? 
Iodine. Aisha, you're on fire today. All you need is a D now. Disinfectant. I'll give you that. Decongestant, dental floss, and deodorant. Those all work. Good job. Oh, my goodness. We see you got those birds, the first one, the catechus. I don't know. I don't know what an ibis. I don't know none of those. So <laughs> I feel like we were able to work together on Absolutely. this. Absolutely. I very much appreciate your assistance. I could not have done it without you. Well, thank you. So, uh, Terrence, you did an awesome job. How do you feel? Relieved that it's over. I guess everybody says that. I, I can't believe how surprisingly nervous I was going into this. Well, you did an awesome job. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Terrence, what member station do you listen to? I am a proud member of WHYY in Philadelphia. Oh, that's what we like to hear. That's Terrence Bennett of Upper Black Eddy, Pennsylvania. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Joseph Young of St. Cloud, Minnesota. He conducts the blog Puzzle Rhea. Name some things you might grow in a garden. Move the middle letter to the beginning. And phonetically, the result sounds like part of the human body and an article of clothing that covers it. What words are these? So again, some things that grow in a garden. Move the middle letter to the start. And phonetically, you'll get two words. One is part of the human body, and the second word is an article of clothing that covers that part. What words are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, April 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Achoo! It's allergy season and the air is full of pollen more than usual because of the mild winter. But new treatments like personalized allergy drops can provide long-term relief. I liked the idea of not having to go in for shots and being able to do it at home. Hear more tomorrow on Morning Edition. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It seems like Carl Nargle has it all. Fame, the adoring public, $46,000 a year, and his own show on a local public television station in Vermont in which he paints pictures live on the air. Then a younger, shinier new painter comes to town and reveals the cracks in Carl's happy little life. This is how Carl's boss puts it to him. Obviously, there's no competition between you and Ambrosia. What I'm trying to say is uh, the young bull is happy to learn from the old bull, though inevitably the young bull will kill the old bull. <laughs> More power to Ambrosia if she can pull it off. That came out wrong. Under all that paint is a story of lost love, ambition, and creativity. The film stars Michaela Watkins, Sierra Renee, and as Carl Nargle, Owen Wilson, who joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. People keep asking me to describe the movie, and the way you described it, I can't do any better than that. 
<laughs> well, I'm glad that we got a nice little description in there. So this movie is this, you know, really cool send up of small town New England. I mean, it, it, it's set in Vermont and everybody is watching this painting show. I mean, it, did you have a lot of fun with that? Yeah, I mean, we did film it in a small town in Saratoga Springs in New York, which I think, you know, they really welcomed us. And my character, Carl Nargle, smokes a pipe, and I've never smoked a pipe before. And there was a tobacco shop in town, and I went in there and got a few uh, tips and pointers on how to look convincing with the pipe. Mm, there was a painter in the 80s and 90s, Bob Ross, who had a painting show on PBS. And, and Carl Nargles seems to be a lot like him. He's got the Art Garfunkel hair, the soothing voice, the nature paintings. Like, did you ever watch him growing up? Not so much growing up, but, you know, we've been talking about certainly his look is. Carl's look is inspired by Bob Ross and Gordon Lightfoot, but I, I see the Art Garfunkel reference also. <laughs> That's a good one. And in getting ready for the movie, you know, I started to watch some of those Bob Ross things. And, you know, what was more kind of interesting to me is how has this guy been so popular and endured? And I think you sort of get it when you watch his shows. There's just a very nice gentle, positive quality, uh, and then also doing something sort of meditative like painting can be, I think that makes people feel good. And certainly that's what we tried to tap into with Carl and explain why he maybe has this following and the number one painting show in Vermont, you know, yeah. now I don't know if there's a lot of competition. We say the number <laughs> one painting show. Uh, really? don't know. Yeah. How many other painting shows? Um, he was competing against, but um, yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the characters that you have played, whether it's Zoolander or Wedding Crashers or, or The Big Year, like in a lot of ways, like these characters are, you know, just over the top. Like they are really big, larger than life. Like, are you just drawn to these unique characters? Well, I think Carl, with that hair, is larger than life. It almost became sort of like a little safety blanket for me. It was when I got the whole get up on in the morning and looked in the mirror, I didn't see much of Owen left. But of course, you know, what Carl is struggling with, I think we can all, you know, have felt at one point or another. So how long did it take for them to get that hair on? Like, do they have to like glue it down or did they just just throw it on? They, they got where they could do it in maybe like a half hour, which okay. is, you know, about, you know, 28 minutes longer than Saturday Night Live seems to take because <laughs> I mean, they're so good that they just slap yeah. those wigs on and mm -hmm. push you out there. This one with Carl, uh, we had a great team and, you know, obviously it's important because I can't imagine Carl Nargle uh, looking any way but this. So it, it really was a part of his character, but he was also a womanizer. Like, but in a little kind of twist, I found it maybe a, maybe a little subversive. When his rival comes and his rival is a woman, she, she sort of does the same thing. Um, what is the film saying about gender roles here? 
I think she sort of handles it, you know, maybe more gracefully than than Carl, but, you know, even the best of us could, you know, start to get a little bit vain and you start to somehow, you know, the, the temptation is hard to resist to, you know, think of yourself, you know, define yourself, not with uh, who you are, but what you do. That's something I think about a lot. It's like, you know, people say, don't make your job be who you are. But it's such a big part of, of what you do and, and you spend so much time there and it drives you. How do you avoid that? I know that's exactly it's like when they say like in the ocean, like, you know, if you start to drown, if you're caught in surf, don't panic. <laughs> oh, okay, well, you know, I, I've swum in the ocean a lot and a few times been in scary situations and you start to panic. How are you yeah. not supposed to panic? Yeah. So I want to play a clip from a little later on in the movie when Carl talks to his ex-girlfriend, Catherine, the station's assistant general manager. Here's a little bit of that. That little hamlet is where I took you for our first date. Good memory. Yeah. Great memory. You know, I forgot how much you used to paint all this other stuff ice cream stands and windmills and birds in flight. Now it's just Mount Mansfield in every single painting. Hard not to hold on to a dream or two. He, he's stuck in the past, but he's he's also holding on to something that was like meaningful to him, like, you know, his dream, his, his, his passion. Yeah, and sort of a dream of greatness for himself that can only be realized by, you know, having, um, you know, his painting in a museum. I think over, you know, right the course of the movie, he's forced to sort of come up with a different way to sort of uh, measure success. Carl's dream is to be in the Burlington uh, Museum of Art, as you as you mentioned. Do you have any types of roles or, or goals that you're still chasing? Or, or are, you, are you at a point now where you're just like having fun? Yeah, there is. I would love to sort of uh, sit down and write something, you know, kind of from start to finish. Uh, that was a story, you know, that maybe I wanted to tell and... Uh, and to kind of, you know, do something like that, I think would be a, would be a, a good challenge for myself. And in in the movie, um, the, the the public TV station in the movie is having some financial struggles, and and you know that that does hit a little close to home for us at NPR these days. Are you a fan of public media? Very much. Uh, I love NPR, and then. Um, you know, my dad worked at the PBS station in Dallas growing oh, up, Channel wow. 13. And, um, you know, I love Ken Burns. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, it's Im important for our culture and, uh, and very valuable. That is Owen Wilson. His new movie is Paint. It's in the movies now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Sunshine in Boston today with a high around 50 degrees. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s, then a sunny Monday, and tomorrow's highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu slash analytics. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, track legend Jackie Joyner Kersey warns us all, even though she's retired, do not think to mess with her. Because you know I got the fold-up javelin oh, in my yeah. bag. Yeah. And Peter Sagal join us for an all-star show with the greatest female athlete ever, plus Ed Helms, Bonnie Raitt, and our discovery of a comedian named Maz Jobrani. That's this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tonight at 6 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.